0: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Dollar Shave Club. Listen, when I talk about Dollar Shave Club, I can't stress enough the quality of their products. They've spent years developing, crafting, refining everything they have. Everything I use to look, feel, and smell my best. You name it, they have it, and I use it. I've been a Dollar Shave Club member for years. I I love the shave butter. The Dr. Carver shave butter because it's see-through.
1: Oh, it's the best.
0: I got a mole right here. I I need to be able to see where I'm shaving, so I don't lick myself. Oh, yeah, you're right, so so you don't die. Oh, yeah. And the executive razor, best cut in the business. And as amazing as their stuff is, Dollar Shave Club is way more than just razors. Dollar Shave Club has you covered head to toe. They have everything you need to shower, shave, style your hair, brush your teeth, and yes, even wipe your butt. And Dollar Shave Club can keep you automatically stocked up on the products you use. You get what? you want whenever you need it whether it's once a month or a few times a year set your own schedule i never have to waste my time at a store wondering if what i'm getting is any good or not mm-hmm. as a dollar shave club member i know what i'm getting is the highest quality and right now you can put the quality of dollar shave club's products to the test their ultimate shave starter set has basically everything you need for an amazing shave the executive razor the shave butter the prep scrub and the post shave do the best part is you can try it for just $5. After that, the restock box ships regular-sized products at regular prices. Get your ultimate starter set for just $5 at dollarshaveclub.com slash heartland. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash
2: heartland.
3: Yeah, kick it on, back and crack a cold one. Yeah, the boys are about to go on. Just shooting the
4: shit and letting it rip. Hey, let's, let's go. go.
3: For
0: Heartland Radio. Here we go. Welcome to Heartland Radio 2.0. Oh, very excited about today. Very excited. We have a, a very special guest, a retired DEA agent who's done all kinds of cool shit. I'm cool just going to tell you this. He tells some great stories. Uh, I think the interview runs for about an hour and 10 minutes-ish. The last 10 minutes particularly electric (laughs) and you'll find out why i'm not gonna i'm not gonna put out a spoiler alert i'm just telling you it will take you off guard it's hilarious and it's awesome and up to that point great as well Mm -hmm. so it was it was an incredible opportunity for us to speak with him very honored let's just get to it Joining us on the phone is a former DEA agent who is largely responsible for the arrest and conviction of Nicky Barnes, a.k.a. Mr. Untouchable. He's also the author of Dancing with the Devil, oh. Confessions of an Undercover Agent, and an actor who has participated in many major television series and Hollywood films. Ladies and gentlemen, Lou Diaz.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Lou.
3: You know, Lou.
0: Lou, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us.
3: It's been a long time since I've been applauded.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? It's about time. You're way overdue then. Um, Okay, thank you. So I guess you you came on our list um, from our book, and I was excited right away because I looked into your story. Obviously, american gangster uh as recently brought to light to a lot of uh, people um the characters uh the real life characters of nicky barnes and frank lucas and you had a big part of uh ending that so i want to get to that but let's just start off with to get to know you a little bit so you started off in the in the atf correct correct and you uh i read you were undercover that entire time did you go right into under, undercover right away
3: Yes, pretty much so. Exactly, my back my background was pretty conducive to my working undercover. That was one of my forte's because I had grown up in Red Hook, Brooklyn. You know, Mr. Mob and Joe Gallo and all these people. Uh-huh. So I pretty much knew how they operated. You know.
0: Okay. So did you have friends in
3: that world growing up,
0: like people from the neighborhood?
3: <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> and, and at that age, you know, when you were young, these guys were looked up to. Believe it or not. And I had one guy, Perky, who always looked out for me, and he introduced me to Joe Gallo when I was about maybe 13 or 14. And it was like the greatest thing in the world, you know?
0: That's incredible. So all right, you always see in these old movies, you know, guys like you that grew up in those neighborhoods, are like, yeah, you had two choices in life. You either, you either joined them, you became a gangster or you became a cop. Was it really like that for you?
3: Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Absolutely. However, my father made sure I was on the right side. He was a tough guy. He made sure I was on the right, on the right <laughs> side.
0: <laughs> well, what did your father do?
3: My father was a foreman in a newspaper. Ah. Huh. And he was former foreman a merchant marine.
1: Oh,
0: really? Okay.
3: Yeah.
1: So gro- growing up in that area and, and meeting guys like Joe Gallo and stuff like that, and since you knew them and you were a cop, did they, did they try taking advantage of their relationship? Ooh.
3: No, no, because I was young when I knew them. And then I went into the army, and when I got back, uh, my friend Perky introduced me to Joe again. And Joe wanted me to go to, to turn professional boxer because I had fought in the army.
4: Oh.
3: I was uh, I was third Army division middleweight champ. So he wanted to turn me into a pro, but he said I had to do the right thing, which meant that whatever they wanted me to do, I had to do. If I had to take a dive, I took uh-huh. a dive, and I wasn't I wasn't about to do that. So anyway, uh, <laughs> I always. Would- I always leaned to the other side anyway. I was raised a Catholic. So at that time, I really knew what they were doing. So I couldn't very much do what they did, and I didn't like what they were doing. So I went to the other side.
2: That's awesome. Lou, Was you, know, you mentioned growing up around these guys. Was there at any point uh, during your childhood where you thought to yourself, I would like to be a gangster instead of going the cop route?
4: <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, well... I don't know if I, if I did or not, but I, I sure enjoyed being in their company. I, I sure mm-hmm. enjoyed sharing their respect because they were well-respected in my neighborhood. They were looked up to. I mean, Joe used to give us money for stickball bats and T-shirts and stuff like that. He was good to us. So we looked up to him.
0: Yeah, and, you know, not even that. I mean, I didn't grow up then or in that kind of neighborhood, obviously. I'm just a Midwest uh, farm fart. But, um <laughs> I, we like uh-huh. our boss. Got he got the, he just interviewed uh, Michael Francis mm-hmm. recently, and uh, you know what? Uh-huh. Every one of those guys just a fun dude to listen, talk, and hang around. Right? Uh huh. So to some
3: degree, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah i guess until, yeah you get in too deep so all right so you, you you join the atf you go right into undercover which by the way blows my mind we just spoke with jay Doxson, um the guy that infiltrated the arizona chapter of the hells of angels and he did the same thing he went straight in undercover and from my world you had to be like a regular cop for a little bit before you could put in for stuff so to go straight from being a civilian um, doing whatever you were doing to join a federal agency and jump right into the world of undercover is mind-blowing to me. So tell me, like, how you felt going in there, and did you think you were ready when they first pushed you out?
3: Well, I tell you what, I, I was complimented that they took that kind of confidence in me to do that in the first place because I was never a pencil pusher or 8-to-5 guy. Uh-huh. So when I gave you that opportunity, I, I just went with it. I... I I was just flattered. I I, I I bit at the bite, you know, I, I was just ready to go.
0: Yeah, so what when you're with the ATF, I, I'm assuming you're you're doing like uh gun trafficking cases mostly. Right. right. So right. what do you have any like uh cool ass stories? Like the, what was the biggest or most interesting uh case you worked on as an undercover where you're with the ATF? Uh
3: there was really no no big glamorous case, you know, because basically ATF was hard. It was hard to deal with guns. It wasn't really a great, uh, how would you say, uh, pr- pr- uh, uh, a great, how would you say, dealing deal in guns at that time. It was like single buyers. A guy would have one gun, sell it to another guy. Some had two or three guns. Some guys would rob a, uh, a truck that had guns, and then he would sell them wholesale. Uh, some guys would rob guns from the pier. But there never were, like, many guns that were for sale, and I never bought that many guns to begin with. Uh, and usually it was through an informant that you made those buys, you know? Okay. So I had, I had the opportunity to buy off some major guys because I, I posed myself as a gang guy with, with certain connections to the gun world. But it was never any major stuff going on, never. Okay. And that's so- one of the reasons why I left ATF, because there wasn't enough action. <laughs> was
0: enough I, I love it. So would you say your time there was, you just kind of, uh, kind of, you developed your chops a little bit, like kind of honed your yeah. skills and mixing that That's up right. in that world? Okay, all right, good. So so you are bored there. You're there for, what, like five years or so, and then you're like, all right, I'm going to look for something better, and then uh, you, you you end up in the DEA. Did you, like, apply to the DEA, or were you recruited into the DEA? how that Yeah,
3: I was, I was pretty much recruited. Okay. Because at that period of time, this was in the 1973, 1974, uh, around that period, a lot of my friends... Uh, transferred over to DEA as well. And the word went out by them and some others that I knew in DEA that uh, I, was a, I was a very, I would just say, good prospect to be recruited uh-huh. for, my ability, for my abilities. So I was taken in by one of the bosses who liked me, and through him I got a job.
0: Okay, all right. So when when you're in there, like uh, when you first started, because I, I read that you you worked undercover 22 of your 28 years in the DEA, right. which is pretty insane. That's, that's an incredible career. And like most people get burned out after a few years of that. So um, I guess you're just born to do that. I'm like, you couldn't imagine yourself doing anything else there?
3: You know, it was kind of part of who I was. You know, I always wanted to be an actor. And being undercover gave me that platform, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing, too, is that uh, I was the kind of kid that had to prove myself. I had a kind sort of a love hate relationship with my father, uh-huh. and he never, rec- he never recognized me for what I was. So I was always trying to prove myself to him. I was always seeking his approbation, which was part of the book. And that's what made me go forward and, and do as well as I could. And that was part of me also because I had that background, you know, growing up in the street and what have you. So I went into it, you know, with a fury, you know? Yeah. Uh, And and I did very well at it.
0: I love that you described it as acting because even on my level of being undercover, I think people don't realize, like, it's just like acting. Like, the difference between watching a bad movie and a good movie, right? Like, you can be... Over the top mm-hmm. with your character, and, and you know yes. that in a movie as an actor, that just makes your movie suck and makes your career yeah, suck. You're, but you're in, right. in your world, if that's, you suck at acting and you're too over the top, somebody kills you or something,
3: <laughs> right? That's right. That's that's a big difference, you know. And in Hollywood and acting, of course, I mean, I mean, there's no there's no fear, there's no danger involved. So, however, you know the difference. And acting in the real world world of crime and working undercover, there's no mistakes to be made. If you make a mistake, you know what that is.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, wh- hey, in in this time period that you're undercover, like, wh- wh- were wiretaps a big thing
3: then? Not that much. No, okay. no, they weren't. Todd. No, they weren't.
0: Okay, so you're ex you're extra heavily relied upon as I guess now. Wh- you you know I'm sure you know now in the DEA. Like, a lot of inside information comes from wiretaps. They, they use undercovers just long enough to get a wiretap going, and that's how you get all your inside scoop. In your world, in your time, all that inside information's coming from you. So I guess uh, you're the star of the show every case, right?
3: Yeah, the, yes, you can say that. You can say that. Uh, I, I, and there were various ways of seeking information and making cases, if you want to know that. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you know, you know because you've been on the bricks also, uh, but if you want to know that, the major way to make cases, of course, the primary way was through informants. Mm-hmm. But in my case, uh, I was always going on fishing expeditions, you know, hanging out in areas where it was uh, narcotics was a uh, 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 was well spread, and guys were were, were kind of deep into narcotics. And I would stop by those neighborhoods and just make myself known, just hang out. Like I come back from work, I stop by, there was a local bar and I would hang out in the bar and just meet guys and what have you. And then one thing that led to another and I would, I would get myself in, into a deal with these people. So a lot of it was based on original information which led to a case and that's how I did it. And then also in addition to that, I worked for other agents undercover.
0: Okay, so. I see like the, i the, this would be the coolest job in the world, like I didn't get to do this when I was on cover by the way that you get you just got to go hang out in an area, sit at the bar, have some beers, look around, and just kind of survey the area and is it like the scene from American gangster where they're they uh they're like, they like they go to the fights and they're just watching everybody and they're like, oh, look at the fur coat on that guy mm-hmm. he's somebody they take the pictures let's find out who that guy is. is that the kind of shit you were doing. <laughs>
3: Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to tell you, Todd, American Gangster was a fairy tale. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, as a matter of fact, Denzel Washington made Frank Lucas Denzel Washington. Because this this guy was, according to Sterling Johnson, was on the borderline of being illiterate. Although he had a great reputation uh-huh. in, his, in his business because he was one of the first ones to, to establish a dope connection from overseas from the Golden Triangle, uh-huh. uh, other, other than that, um, like like Nikki said, he was a country bumpkin.
0: Well, he didn't last as long as Nikki, right? He only ran like half the shelf life that Nikki had on the street.
3: Yes, exactly. Uh
0: huh. Okay, so that makes sense. Oh, just, before we get into Nikki Barnes, can you tell us if this is the truth or not? Because everybody loved an American gangster when Frank Lucas uh, was hiding the heroin in the coffins of the dead soldiers coming back from Vietnam. <laughs>
3: Jeez, <laughs> that's the biggest lie in the world. My God. <laughs> <laughs> God. <laughs> oh, jeez, how no. terrible that is. Oh, no,
0: no. How was Frank Lucas in real life actually bringing the heroin in? How was he smuggling it?
3: Well, well the heroin was being, at that time, uh, and I, I don't know if it's up to present, but soldiers, when they were coming from overseas, they had whole baggage. They, their, their duffel bags and their personal property that they had could be transferred with no uh, customs in, inspection. So they were bringing dope in duffel bags. Oh. They were bringing dope in their furniture. You know, they were bringing, uh, doping the cars that they bought and were bringing them over to the United States. There was a myriad of different ways that they could do it other than putting them in clothes.
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: that's Hollywood for you. Did you know um, Richie, what's his name? The um, Roberts? Yeah, did you know him at all?
3: Oh, man, I got to tell you one. He's, a, he's one of the biggest wastes I've ever heard of. That guy <laughs> only knew... Frank Lucas, he was just his defense attorney. That's, all he, that's how we knew uh, uh, Frank Lucas. He was just his defense attorney. And how they made this guy what they did in the picture was another great fiction story.
0: Really? Uh, yep. That's so funny. Um,
2: yep. <laughs> fuck you, Russell Crowe. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> the hell is that? I, I was scrolling through and... Uh... <laughs> My new favorite soundbite... Jeez. It does sound, well, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like your stomach when you get a little hangry. Oh, it does. That's exactly what it sounds like.
1: scarfing down food.
2: (laughs) And you know, there's a cure for that because it doesn't matter what time it is Uh when you could just Postmate it. Yep. Red wine at 4 p.m., sushi at 9 p.m., breakfast burrito at 8 a.m., ibuprofen at 10 a.m. It doesn't matter. Postmates has it. Just use your phone, download the Postmates app, and you can get anything you need sent right to your That's door. pretty awesome. Postmates is your personal food delivery, grocery delivery, whatever kind of delivery service, all year round, anything you're craving, they can deliver. They're the largest on-demand network in the U.S. and offer delivery from all restaurants, grocery, and convenience stores, plus traditional retailers you could possibly want or need. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, Postmates will bring you what you need within the hour. No more trips to the store. You don't even have to know where the store is. Postmates will deliver anything to you. Download the app for iOS or Android for free. Browse local restaurants and businesses and track your delivery in real time. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use code HEARTLAND. That's code HEARTLAND for $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. Download Postmates and save with code Heartland.
0: Hey Lou, so you you you're largely responsible for bringing down Nicky Barnes, and he was truly uh, like the Godfather there in Harlem, right? He like he, he had his pol- finger on the pulse of everything heroin wise there.
3: Yes. Yes.
0: Tell me about because uh, I know that he started the, the council, which was pretty revolutionary for that day so he, he got all the other uh, African- American uh, kind of crime bosses there on the same page and he formed this council
3: correct correct and he and he got that that model he created that model as a result of being in jail in Greenhaven with Joe Gallo oh. and Joe, Joe Gallo took a liking to him. As a matter of fact he just brought him into under, under, under his, uh, he rented, uh, Nicky and he liked Nikki, and he just stayed with him and, and taught him s- certain things. And he taught him exactly what the mob does, how the, the mob structure, how they dealt with things, so forth and so on. And when Nikki got out, that Joe Gallo helped him get out with an attorney that he had, Nicky went right to the books and started his business with the same way the mob did with the uh, capo de tutti capo, capo de conserviere. Uh, so he was doing what, what Joe had taught him to do. And one of the things that he led to was the establishment of that uh, seven-group seven council that, that Nikki was in charge of. And they acted as the same way mob families did.
0: That makes so much sense. So getting this education from Joe Gallo in prison and then coming out and setting up under that model, was part of his education? Was there an agreement made between Joe Gallo and him that they would use the mafia um, to help get the, uh, heroin in from overseas?
3: Well, it wasn't so much an agreement between Joe and him. Uh, Joe let him run his own, his own business. Okay. Uh But Nikki always had his connection with the mob, with Maddie Madonna, who was another guy from the Genovese family. So Maddie, so Nikki always had that connection with the mob before he met Joe Gallo and Joe Gallo pretty much, uh, started using blacks in his business. And, and that's why he was so unliked by the mob, because he did that. Oh. He, he dealt with minorities. He let them come in. And, and that was one of the things when he shot uh, uh, Colombo. Uh, Joe, oh, come on. Joe, uh, Joe Colombo, I believe it was, when he shot him at that that Italian-American Italian uh, American, uh feast or something like that, yeah. it was a black guy that got him.
0: Oh, and this was all oh, because... Oh yeah, that
1: was, that was in The Irishman. That's yeah, right. yeah,
0: yeah, it was a scene from the movie The Irishman, actually, yeah. So it was because yeah. he was um, breaking tradition, he was working with minorities?
3: That's right. Wow. Exactly right. That's incredible. And, and that pissed off, that pissed off Joe Profaci, because Joe Profaci was looking to incorporate Joe into his mob, into his organization, but Joe Profaci down the line betrayed Joe so Joe went to war with Profaci. That's where you get in The Godfather, the original Godfather, uh-huh. when they went to the mattresses. That was the war between Joe and, and Profaci. It was Leon Did Corleone.
0: you say that's when they went to the mattresses?
3: Yeah, they went to war. Well, yeah, that's that's one... they, 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 they bunkered down in the place, yeah. you know, and they had, just like in The Godfather, the movie.
0: Oh, yeah. And, but I just wanted to recognize that because I think I talked over you for a second there. And go, going to the mattresses is the greatest term of all time for going to war. (laughs) I love every time I hear it in a movie. Um, uh, So, Lou, tell me about how do you start to fit in now? So how how do you make your way into this uh, organization?
3: Into Nikki's?
0: Yeah, the Nikki's.
3: Okay, first of all, we started with an informant who came from the FBI, all right? And this informant, uh, his name was Geronimo, he grew up with Wally Fisher, who was the brother of Guy Fisher, who was one of Nicky Bond's principal lieutenants, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and they were on the border of Pleasant Avenue, which was still run by the Genovese family. As a matter of fact, Geronimo's uh, uncle was one of the biggest guys in that. He was the capo of that family in, in Pleasant Avenue. So when he came to us, he just wanted to uh, work on the, the black part of, uh, of the uh, area, and wanted to work on Nicky Barnes. So anyway, he was introduced to me uh, because of my reputation, uh-huh. and we kind of sat down and we talked things over, we debriefed him, we, 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 we wrote reports based upon what he was telling us, we compared his reports to intelligence reports, and most of the things panned out. So he was legitimate, we, we found that he was legitimate, so I was able to go with him. And one of the things that I did was that I created a background story that I was kind of a go-between. I, I did different things for different families, whatever they needed, whether it was a hit or something stolen or whatever. And I was getting too hot because nobody trusted me after a while. Mm. So I went back to California. I went to California to cool off, you know, and then I wanted to come back to New York and get back into my business. But when I got back, I couldn't get back. This is the story. Of
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. I
3: couldn't, I, I couldn't get back into the heroin trade, which I was involved in because nobody was deal with me. So eventually, that's when I got involved with G, or I call him G, and G brought me to see Guy, Fish, Guy Fisher, Raleigh Fisher, who was connected to these guys. And little by little, he started bringing me, bringing me in to all of Nicky's associates, which were major, major players. So the whole case centered around a conspiracy.
0: Yeah, and here's a question. Who, who named your informant Geronimo? That was his name. Oh, <laughs> 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 I thought that was the name you're using in your reports. <laughs> that was the yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So, all right. So, so you get introduced to these these main players, and they, I assume, start giving you work in the way of what, uh, like uh, selling.
3: Yeah, I I would know. I would make buys from them. Okay. Okay. I start make buys from some from, from his. Uh, principal players and uh, that led to further conversation because I was introduced to Nicky's primary lieutenant in the absence of uh, Guy Fisher who was arrested and he took me under his, uh, how would you say, under his belt, this guy Jazz and I got close to him. He owned uh, a restaurant and a club called Degassi's uh, uh, in Harlem. One of the principal, I think it was uh, Clayton Powell, Clayton Powell Avenue uh, and he had one, a very big a very big club there, and I was introduced to him. And from there, he started, we started moving out into other areas of the Barnes organization, and it was a lot of conversation and set up. It was like a chess game, Todd. It was like a chess game, going from one thing to another, implicating one guy to another, yeah. uh, getting, trying to get information through jazz to, to implicate Nikki, which eventually happened.
0: So you're in a good spot. Like, I assume you're buying fairly large amounts and uh, just posing as like a large-level dealer in your own right. So uh, yeah. you're, you're making buys from, from multiple people at uh, a high level within that organization. When was when the first time you came face-to-face with Nikki?
3: You know, as a matter of fact, that's, that's the whole irony of this story. I only saw him once on a vibe, but I never dealt with him directly because Nicky would never have that. Uh-huh. The first time I met him personally where we were face-to-face was in the trial, when this is trial. Wow.
0: Okay, and when this whole thing is going on, like, this guy, Nikki Barnes, is like, uh, he's got a lot of celebrity there in New York, right? They're calling him Mr. Untouchable. I saw he was on the cover of uh, the New York Times.
3: Right. Right. So... so as a, as Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was going to say,
0: with that kind of celebrity, your bosses just had to get extra attention. Were you, just, were you like the 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 primary case going on at that time?
3: Yes, we were the case. The biggest case that D.A. had at that time. Uh-huh. So,
0: so does that mean big budget? Anything you need, Lou? Just let us know?
3: You know what? i got to tell you the truth, Todd. In those days, it was just incredible. I mean, the FBI had a better situation where they would give their guys anything they needed, and that was Joe pistone he was given jewelry uh-huh. he was given anything he needed to, to propagate his position right uh-huh. well with us, especially with me, I had to fish with stuff because if you put in a request for something, it would take months before you got it approved <laughs> that's the way it was back then. so I had to use my own connections to get by for example, I grew up with some guys that you know we're, were into different things for example, I had a guy Richard Montero who was the head of a uh, Uh, the uh, gas gas, uh, company. Uh And I would use him to provide me with cover, with those uh, sewer sewer covers. Uh When the men would work down there and they put curtains around there, you know, so I could have surveillance units there. Uh I had a guy that was a merchant marine officer and he gave me merchant marine papers. So I I used to use all these things as a background to facilitate who I was at that time. But Uh VA in itself, I gotta tell you, never really helped me personally.
1: Wow! So with, with Nikki Barnes being such a big celebrity in in New York, and and all the people that you were around with, did you ever run into celebrities and athletes that were kind of involved in the organization as well?
3: No, no, no I, I didn't. You know, as a matter of fact, Joe Gallo was the one that was was involved with a lot of celebrities. He was the one. Nikki, as far as I know, wasn't. Okay, uh, he was. He was just a star among his own people.
0: Okay. And is he is he kind of following the other part of the mafia model? Is he, like, uh, beloved in the community, passing out turkeys at Thanksgiving, these kind of things?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I got to tell you, he was treated like Al Capone. He was the Al Capone of Harlem at that time. He was treated with such reverence. He would walk into a club, and guys would stand up when he walked in. I mean, he was really a major player, and had major respect from all his people.
0: Wow. Now, was there ever a point where, because you're <laughs> incredible, by the way, that you're just having to uh, provide your own um, cover and all this other stuff, because um, <laughs> I assume Undercover must have been new at the time to DEA, but like, was there ever a, a point that you remember where like, you should have been burnt or you were almost burnt?
3: matter of fact, yes, it, there came a time when I was surveilling a guy that I was supposed to buy dope from. And then my surveillance team was so close, they were like a bumper hitch. <laughs> and I, I had to lose them, and I did. And then there was a time when I had them fake, that I was going to shoot it out with them because that's how close they were. And I was with, with, with the lollyfish fisher at the time, and I was ready to get out of the car and take them on. And I, Wally was the one that talked me out of it, but obviously that was an undercover trick.
0: <laughs> uh, so, when, when you would go to work every day and jump into this world, were you going back to your real house, a real apartment at the end of the day, or were you set up in, uh, in like temporary housing in case you were followed?
3: You know, Todd, that's another thing that's incredible. That's another. They never provided me with a house or apartment. I came up with I came up with the background story or over the situation, because I knew the neighborhood like the back of my hand. And there was a, an apartment building complex where you had to walk in and then just get lost in the in the apartment house, right? Uh-huh. So when when they would come when Wally would come with me, I would tell them to come with me because I got to go and check my apartment out. So I would go in, check my check my check as if I was going in. And then about ten, fifteen minutes later, I would come out and get back into the car. So that was my, how would you say, my undercover apartment, <laughs> wow. which I never used, you know. <laughs> uh, and then as far as uh, dealing with uh, these people, as far as my cover going home, I, I, I went home. I went home, and I never went home the same way. I mean, because yeah. I was obviously very preoccupied with being being trailed, and I would I would drive with the with my forty-five by my my hip, and I would always try and stop in a position for a traffic like where I could peel out without being, how would you say, gunned down? You know. Yeah. And when I when I went home, I would park in different areas and use another car that I had taken as an undercover. I use it as an undercover car. Uh-huh. So I never went home the same way, and I never used the same car to to stop at my house. Wow.
0: So. And, and, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's incredible, it's incredible. The world that. And then at any given time, you say your surveillance team, like how many, how many people were there? Like if, and if you needed help, what what were the instructions? Like nowadays they would be like listening to a transmitter and you would have like a a rescue word or something you would say and they would come get you. Like, did you have anything worked out like that at all?
3: Yes, I did. Yes. We had a transmitter and that's another funny story. We had a transmitter built into my car Uh. and, and they would pick up on the nature of my conversation they would just pick up that I was in trouble. You know, I wasn't. Yeah, there wasn't yeah. any exact code names or anything like that. So they would pick up from me because I would make the conversation relative to to need and help it.
1: Excellent, absolutely excellent. Saving money is excellent.
0: It is excellent, isn't it? Uh, it's most excellent. I mean, there's,
1: there's not a lot better than, than saving some money.
0: Nothing makes you feel better than money in the bank.
1: And a great way to save money is honey. Mm. It is. Giving holiday, holiday gifts is great. Yeah. Overspending on all those gifts is definitely not. It's not. So why spend more than you have to? Finding the lowest price is easy if you have Honey. Ooh. Honey is a free browser extension that automatically finds the best promo codes whenever you shop online. So like all these, all these ads that we read, do ads reads for, and we say promo code, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. That's to support us. But if, if you're not buying something from one of our people... They're going to find you the best promo code out there. And they're going to find you the best deal out there. Right? Oh. Every time. Yeah, you get it. I do. For a second, you didn't. But now you do.
2: Well, you did an excellent job explaining Thank
1: you. It. This means you always get the best deals without even trying on over 20,000 sites such as Amazon, eBay, Crew, Sephora, Expedia, Target, Best Buy, and more. I went online the other day to Amazon. Okay? I got myself an air fryer. Oh, And honey... Automatically threw in a promo code there for me. I saved $43. <laughs>
2: Steal.
1: Yeah. $43. Thanks for uh, the wings, honey. Sure. It's a couple orders of wings, my friend. Mm-hmm. That was that was a hey, that, w- that was a good day. That was a good day. Honey has found it's over 10 million members, over a billion dollars in savings. It's a lot of billion dollars. Yeah. I know. (laughs) That's a lot. Well, it didn't say how many billion dollars, but yeah, Yeah. a billion dollars is a lot. lot. Honey supports over 20,000 stores online. Honey has over 100,000 five-star reviews on the Google Chrome store. If you're buying gifts this holiday season, then you need Honey. If you're not, you probably know someone who is, so do them a solid and tell them about Honey. Honey can help make sure that you're getting the best price for whatever you're buying it's free to use and installs in just
2: two clicks. Mm. It's free to use. It's free. Hey, why don't you try it? Why wouldn't you? How many clicks? Two clicks. Oh, that's what thought. <coughs> that was three.
1: I, I didn't think my first sound was a good enough click. Uh,
2: didn't register on the click. Yeah, you didn't press hard enough. <coughs> that's, oh.
1: Get honey for free at joinhoney.com slash heartland. That's joinhoney.com slash heartland.
0: So when when this case like how long total did, were you devoted to this case?
3: About 8 months.
0: 8 months. And then um indictments came. I guess uh, was it pretty much like your what you did undercover that's that was that the probable cause they used?
3: Yes, that went to the, all the things that I did went to the grand jury. Exactly. So you put as a result of my testimony. Wow. So you
0: were actually the one that put the conspiracy together because you dealt with so many different people that was able to, to tie the, together the fact they were all working in concert?
3: That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. I was the primary agent who did that. Mm-hmm. Wow. So he
0: All right, so he goes down. And then uh, did you have any involvement with him when he turned informant later?
3: No, I didn't. I didn't. Okay,
0: so you're gone then.
2: Louis, at that point, once, once all these guys start going down, was there any uh, fear on your part of retaliation from them? Oh, yeah.
3: Yes, yes. Me and my partner would cover each other going home, and I remember putting a piece of scotch tape on the hood of my car, okay, when I parked because I was going to court on trial preparation. So I remember putting a scotch tape on my hood of my car and taking precautions that way. It wasn't... Obviously the best, but it was something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: were, were car bombs a big thing then yet?
3: Uh, not really. Okay. I got to tell you, not really, but they were used. They were used.
0: Yeah. Uh, so when nikki has gone, you're, you're, I assume at this point, uh, a big pat on the back for you in the way of the DEA. Hey, what do you want to do next? Where, where did you go from there?
3: I tell you what, it wasn't a big pat on the back, which I'm, I'm sorry to say, uh, uh, I'm really sorry to say, but there wasn't a big pat in the back. As a matter of fact, I went into seclusion after that case because I had kind of blown my wad on it, you know?
4: Yeah, yeah. And
3: I, I was really down in the dumps because I had done one of the biggest cases in my career, and it was all gone. I, sh- I shot my load, you know? Oh. So I was kind of, nothing else was, was coming my way as a result of it. Because I was kind of wasted as a result of what I did, and I was kind of well known because I testified in court as well for about six or seven weeks. Yeah. So a lot of people got you know got to know me and see me. So I was uh, kind of shelved, if you will.
0: So they have you like just working a desk, like uh, administrative stuff in the meantime. What? How are you getting your checks? To some
3: degree, yes. Yes. To some degree, yes, okay. yes, okay. some degree, yes Todd.
2: uh Lou, what was the testimony process like? Because I assume after all those uh, years of kind of watching over kind of uh, piles up on you.
3: Well, the, the testimony was everything I did with Mickey and his subordinates was the direct testimony of things that I was involved with. All
0: right, so did, they play, uh, did you have these, uh, I guess, volumes and volumes of recordings that you had made?
3: Yes, there were several recordings, and uh, they went into what you call... Uh, There was a a name for it. But anyway, the tapes had to be heard first before it was submitted as evidence. So there was several tapes that I had to testify to. And the other thing was, when they would ask me questions related to a scene, I always listened to the tape Mm -hmm. before I wrote down the the elements of what happened. So I was conversing with what I said so that I wouldn't be tricked on the stand that I knew what I was talking about.
1: Yeah. And then when you're in court... Is that the first time that they are realizing that you were the person that took them down? Yes. And what was that? What, yes. what was their reaction like to that? Did oh. they even, oh. Did any of them say anything to you or anything like that?
3: Yeah, well, it was a couple of figures that were thrown at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but beyond, I, I pretty much, I'm pretty much. Nikki, as a matter of fact, I have to give him credit. He he gave me a lot of respect. Nikki, he gave me a lot of respect. A uh, matter of fact, he says so. In a, in a conversation that they had, I think it was the History Channel interviewed him, and uh, he gave me a lot of respect. I have to give him credit for that. Well, I gave him respect, too, because he was a formidable adversary. you know that, you yeah. know how that is yeah, absolutely it's like the old West, you know gunfighters uh-huh. they, they may be fighting a bad guy, but the the good guy respects his ability with the gun.
0: yeah, mm-hmm. oh, that's cool as hell. Did you ever wear a transmitter or a recorder on your person? I'm assuming you did at some points. Oh yes, yes, many times. All right. So this is my question because uh, when I when I first got into our, our drug unit, this was early 2000s. But the state police here, I, I probably used some of the same equipment that you used. Like it, they probably <laughs> got passed down from the DEA using the 70s, and now we were using it. But I remember they put this block thing the first one i ever did they put it on my inside of my thigh and there was like uh um almost like that hospital band thing they put around it and like halfway through i think it ran on a nine volt and halfway through me doing my first buy there this thing like
3: you got burnt yeah
0: burnt burnt the shit out of me and nobody warned me did that happen to you all the time
3: well it happened to me occasionally yeah (sighs) okay occasionally yeah there was no way to get around that because we didn't have anything more sophisticated than that, God. Yeah, you know? <laughs> so then I'm like... Although, I- <laughs> although we had one other thing, and because of time, I forget, I forget the, the name of it, but it was a, like a small tape recorder, a small transmitter, bigger huh. than the Kel, yeah. and you would put it on your back, and it would transmit, but they didn't... They, uh, they were somehow, it would record as a, as a result, and that transmit would record
0: This is why I have so much respect for the stealthiness you guys used to have back in the day, because people don't know. You just said the word Kel. What a Kel is, a Kel is the um, actual, like, receiver. Mm -hmm. So if he's wearing a transmitter, this Kel goes into the car that's providing security for him, right? They're surveilling why he buys. And, man, back in that day, and I'm assuming, again, we were using hand-me-downs from you when I got there, because it was the size of a suitcase, and it had to go in your back seat. And it was a hardwired antenna that was like a giant whip antenna that was like eight feet in the <laughs> air, and you had to put this on top of your car, and you could see the cable like going out from the back window to the top of your roof, mm-hmm. and then you were supposed to nobody's supposed to notice. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: right. You guys had well, to deal I with tell
3: that. And in, in our case, we had a little better, we had a little better equipment than that. <laughs> I mean. We had a we had a suitcase with the tape recorder and a receiver that would pick up the transmission from the kelp, and it would record the conversation. Uh, but no, we didn't have any particular antennas. Right? We were lucky, I guess. But we didn't uh, have that. Yeah. I guess we more, we more. <laughs> they gave you the, they gave you the shit. We got the better
0: part of it. It was the worst. The worst. Right. Um, all right. So I also go ahead.
1: Blue. I saw. I saw that um, Netflix is, has a movie coming out called The Council where Will Smith is going to be playing Nikki Barnes. Yeah. Do you know if you are portrayed in that movie or were you asked to be a consultant at all in that movie? Do you know? Are you familiar with it at all?
3: Yes, I am. And a matter of fact, I'm pretty upset about it. Mm. But from what I understand, the movie is going to be just about the trial and, uh, and the counsel itself. And uh, I didn't hear anything about me. And him being, I didn't get in touch by anybody, including Will Smith. But I made certain attempts to get in touch with Will Smith, to let him know, hey, you know what? This guy went down, he went to court because of me, you yeah. know? And there's other things, there was some intricate things that are involved, that come from me, that involve Nikki. So, you know, I, I should be a part. I mean, I'm not looking to, to gloat over this, you know? Yeah. Because it's hard to talk about yourself without sounding self-serving, <laughs> you know? But... but well, if anything, yeah, I, I deserve to be in that. I I deserve to be in that movie. Yeah, thousand, thousand percent it's not, agree. It's not at least a consultant.
0: Ten thousand percent agree. And right now, Joe, we're just going to ask our listeners because they're they're pretty militant. They mm-hmm. they 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 we we put out a call to action, and they're all behind it. Oh, yeah. Right now, everybody that's listening to this needs to immediately tag Will Smith and put out a tweet or an Instagram post about the fact that he needs to include. Lou Diaz
2: in this movie.
1: Lou, when you talk to him, let him know that we have a Nicky here, too, who loves him, by the way. When you talk to Will Smith, let him know that big well, fan. Big Lou, fan. I'm not
2: surprised he hasn't reached out to you or he hasn't uh, contacted you to, to research this role at all. He's just going to portray it. Uh, it'll, it'll probably be terrible, but, uh.
3: <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, you know, I I, I I kind of surprised because Will Smith looks nothing like Nicky, and he's much, much taller than Nick. Nicky was about 5'8". I think Will Smith is about six foot something, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I don't know. Man, man. It's a shame. You know what? Yeah,
3: I'm. Gonna, go ahead.
0: He, he's he's reaching for an award and he's not going to get it. <laughs> just to, he's not going to get it. <laughs> well, um, he's a
3: great actor. You know, he's a great actor. So was uh-huh. maybe he'll pull it off? I don't know, but <laughs> I I think it's going to be a hard representation myself personally.
0: Yeah, I mean that sucks because too like the the trial is going to be the most boring part of the whole case. So show me all the cool shit you were doing. That, that's mm-hmm. the part I want to see. But right. But past that, you were in some other cool operations as well. There's three that I found. If you wouldn't mind talking about them a little bit, because I'm assuming like you started to step into the uh, Pablo Escobar era, right? Yes. And you were still undercover at that time. Yes. Now, so were you used in any part of that investigation, at least stateside? Yes. Okay, talk about that.
3: Well, primarily, uh, there was a case agent in Florida, who was a friend of mine, and he was looking for uh, an undercover in Orange County, and we were friends, so he he knew about me, of course, and he suggested that I be involved with the case in Orange County. Mm -hmm. And so the way it went, there was two major guys, uh, Jose Lopez and and uh, Alfonso Reyes, who uh, were lieutenants for Escobar, and he was part of their laundering state site. And, stateside. and they, they were laundering money in California, and I was picking up money for them in California. However, the big distinction between me and other undercovers that were doing the same thing was other undercovers in other areas were just picking up the money and bringing it to their, their contact, who, their, who would then forward it to the bank. Okay. Uh-huh. But in my case, I tried to get them involved in conversation to put them in to put them in touch with the dope the money they were giving me. So I created certain scenarios that would do that, oh. that would bring that before. So I was able to get these people in conversation that subsequently let let, be, uh, let, let the let led them to be indicted and arrested later on in the case. And uh-huh. as far as uh, these two major guys were concerned there was one point where I actually talked to one of them and got him on tape. So he was, in the, he was in the, right in the stoop directly as a result of that conversation. But there are other situations where he also provided evidence as a result of his involvement with the Florida people. Wow.
0: Did you ever work with Steve
3: Murphy or Javier Pena? No, I didn't. I have to say, I don't even know their names. I'm sorry.
0: Okay, they were the the guys in Colombia working on Escobar. They they were on our show not not too awful long ago. So I'm I'm just trying to put together the overlap of time because if you're you're over there dealing with the money in California, and I assume you have counterparts also in the Miami area covering what's coming in from Mexico there. So it was like this Correct. triangle you guys are putting together. Um, it's interesting. That was such a big case that you you probably wouldn't even know who else was
3: doing what. That's right. Absolutely.
0: Uh, In your experience with them, um, and I don't know how deep you got involved with them, but the cartel versus who you worked before, the the African-American crime family or crime bosses, and then the uh, Italian-American mafia crime families, and then the cartel, like... Was the cartel just a different animal, like violence-wise?
3: You know, they, they, were similar, they were similar to the black organizations and the Colombian organizations, but even to a bigger degree in terms of how they intimidated people. One of the, one of the main ways of doing business was that if somebody fucked up, they would get their family. Their family was in direct involvement. Oh. They would kill the whole families, which is different than what the Italians would do, because the Italians would never kill members of a family, especially children, yeah. whereas the Colombians would. And the same thing with the black people. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do that either, but the so, Colombians would.
0: That's interesting. So there was a, like a line in the sand. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't fuck with family, and that's good. It's a good line. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a good line to draw. And <laughs> it yes. kind of makes you an extra monster uh, if you don't respect that um uh, was there any right. anyone anything that happened during your time dealing with this group um did it just just go well thankfully or were there were there was there a part of that case where things got a little hairy for you personally
3: you know there was one situation where i was dealing and i forget his name right now there were so many people involved but anyway uh i was counting money with this particular fella and he said that he had just whacked the guy the day before. Mm. And, it, and it turned out that he did. So, so I was a little apprehensive about this guy, <laughs> that he was trigger-happy, you know? Uh-huh. So I had, I had three eyes on this guy, and uh, I was pretty preoccupied about him. And then after the money laundering went down, he became a fugitive, and eventually they got him.
0: Wow. So, yeah. when, so your guys got wrapped up in the, the indictment after Escobar was killed? Or before? Yes. Okay.
3: Yes. No, before, I'm sorry. Before,
0: before. Okay, great. So that's when the the kind of the the foundation started to crumble Mm -hmm. for him.
3: That's right. Exactly right.
0: Okay.
4: Shiver me timbers.
0: Shiver me timbers. You know, pirates were pretty hairy. Yeah,
1: yeah,
4: yeah. yeah.
0: Pretty hairy guys. Uncomfortable for uh, all the time they spent at sea. They would have a much better life as a pirate now if they could get on board with Manscaped. Oh, yeah, they would. Because they would be clean-shaven down there. You know, It gets sweaty when you're out to Mm see that. Sounds scurvy.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Plus all the salt water. Oh, all the salt
0: water. Support for Heartland Radio comes from Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-bell grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family. Mm Jewels. Jingle balls to the walls, fellas. Listen up. Untrimmed pubes are a thing of the past. It's time to gear up and get yourself the gift of shaving this holiday season. I am talking about the Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0. You know, one time I almost bled to death, Nick, my balls.
1: Really? Yep.
0: Yep. Well, I had been drinking a lot the night before, and my blood was a little thinner Mm. than usual. I didn't think I was going to be able to get it to stop. The platelets. Thankfully, it did. And I told myself, I'm not shaving down there anymore until someone comes up with the proper technology. Mm -hmm. To keep me safe, it's
1: just unsafe,
0: so, and Manscaped has done it. Finally, Thank finally, God. I can do. I don't worry about a thing. I just go to town. It's easy. That's why this revolutionary company, Manscaped, has redesigned the electric trimmer for guys like me. Their Lawnmower 2.0 as proprietary advanced skin-safe technology. So this trimmer won't nick or snag your nuts. It's also waterproof, so you can use it in the shower, oh, which God. is awesome. They actually just got launched in Target stores, by the way. What? Yeah, Target store. Target? That's a huge milestone for them. And the movement to save men from having hairy pubic regions is in full freaking force. Nice. Don't use the same trimmer on your face that you're using on your balls. It's nasty. Knock it off. If you're doing that, knock it off. Don't do
2: it.
4: Okay.
0: You're an animal. Perform like, like a human. The Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0 also includes the crop preserver, an anti-shafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits. Why are you not putting deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? The taint. Ah, I think is what they're referring to here. Yes. Uh, probably. S- speaking of sweaty and sticky balls. <laughs> Sweaty and stinky balls,
1: Ooh. and sticky balls yeah, It's all it all plays
0: all is- that bad stuff with your balls. I'm thankful for the Crop Reviver. Um, this product, along bring with it the back Crop to Life Yeah Preserver, keeps your balls from sweating, smelling, or sticking to your leg. Yeah, you your balls stick to your leg all the time. It's quite uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, it's very uncomfortable.
0: Tis the season of manscaped. So get yourself, your dad, your brother, and friends the best gift of all: the Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0. Get 20 percent off plus free shipping with the code HEARTLAND at manscaped.com. Again, it's 20% off, plus free shipping with the code HEARTLAND at manscaped.com. Your balls. Well, thank you. Dude, man, you've had a storied career. Can I ask you about your time spent on Operation Henry? I, I read where you worked with the Scotland Yard.
3: Oh, my God. That case was incredible. Oh yeah, well, yeah. I'm glad
0: I remembered to ask yeah. about it.
3: That was actually it was funny too. Uh, well, we 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 arrested a guy in New York, and I won't tell you how it happened, but it was funny too. Okay. Okay. But anyway, we we had we had taken down a guy in New York on, on the uh, Upper East Side. Okay. The guy flipped. Okay. And he gave us he gave us his source. Okay. Uh-huh. So there was a time when we knew this guy was going to deliver. The, uh, the cocaine to this guy who we call Flip, right? Uh-huh. So we, was, we set up in a, in a restaurant, in a kind of diner, if you will, that, that, that looked over the block that he would be walking down. but we didn't have any ID on the guy. So this guy was there was one person that walked by, it was several person that walked by. And then when this one guy passed by, I had this sixth instinct about things. I just had that instinct. And when I saw this guy walking by, I said, this is a fucking guy. <laughs> so me and my, this is my partner walked out and stopped him. And I said, hey, buddy, how are you? What are you doing? What are you up to? And the guy got very nervous. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the indications of getting probable cause to search him, right? Yeah. So I said, you mind if I pat you down? The guy said, no. So we patted him down. We found the kilo in his possession. Nice. So we took nice. him down, brought him to the office. And we never gave up the other guy. And he flipped. And he says, listen, I'm not gonna give up any cocaine guys because that would be my life. But I know some guys in England who are doing heroin and you can get into them through me. So make a long story short, he flipped on that. He put a call down to London and he spoke to the main culprit, if you will. They call them villains, okay? Uh-huh. And through that, through that conversation, he, made us, he gave us the int- entry for us to go over to England and meet these guys. So there came a time when we went to England and met these guys. in a a restaurant, and we dealt with, I dealt with a guy named Leslie, Ron Leslie, who was supposedly the guy that broke Donald Biggs out of jail, who was the guy who masterminded the $8 million, um, $8 million pound robbery, train robbery. Oh,
4: yeah, Uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, so we dealt with him, and we got pretty far with him, and there came a point where we negotiated four kilos of of, uh, heroin, and we flashed the money to him in a bank, and I flashed him. And Scotland Yard was with us, and we flashed the money to him. Half of it was in American money, half of it was in pounds. But we thought we did that. I have to tell you, I was in the office with these guys, and I always thought Scotland Yard was a different entity, but it's just a headquarters for the uh, London police. Okay, oh. so I was I was sitting down with this guy, and I, I was taken back with his accent, you know, and and I. I started to laugh you know and the guy said what's so funny he says oh well i'm just looking back at the at sherlock holmes and the the hounds of baskerville and that's all i see when i talk to you you know and, and they started laughing and and then we, we took it off from there we made we made good friends after that uh, and they appointed they appointed uh several uh scotland yard guys with guns because obviously you may know that they, they don't carry guns there, right, but right. they can carry guns on special assignments. So I had about six or seven guys cover me when I went to the bank. And from there, uh, we, we met again and we negotiated the sale of four kilos, which was sub- subsequently supposed to lead to the sale of 40 kilos of heroin. And that went on for a while. Matter of fact, there came a time when we were followed and I was on the train with them. And I could tell that was being tailed because it was obvious they were following <laughs> me, you know. <laughs> so I dropped my keys uh, and I looked back and I made the guys who were following us. And then my partner and I, I said, I said, Georgie, follow my lead. So when the train stopped, I pulled the French connection bit where I went out of the doors and the doors closed and they went on. I said, goodbye, fellas, goodbye. <laughs> and, and that was that. But there came a time when we, we made the case go down. We were supposed to negotiate. The, we negotiated the forty kilos. They had it, and then shit went away. They got nervous. They left. But eventually, we arrested most of them. As they, it was like Keystone cops. Guys were running everywhere, yeah. and uh, the British authorities were arresting people left and right. But a couple of guys got away, especially the guys with the forty kilos. But eventually, when we we were taken to prison as a result of being part of that, and then we were we were we were taken out of the country. We're told to leave the country, and then eventually. Uh, Scott Mignard did get the forty kilos from these guys, and that case went down very well. Wow,
0: good for awesome. you, man!
3: Uh, what did yeah. you, so? Oh, did they, did
0: they have many like undercover people in place? Was that a big thing then for them?
3: No, no, we were the only ones in there. Yeah, because they they weren't allowed in Europe at that time, and it may still be that way. They're not allowed to have wiretaps or undercovers. Wow, hmm. because it's considered entrapment. And uh, and they just
0: didn't. They just didn't have me. Just making it easy for terrorists is <laughs> what they did. Uh, yeah. So, Joe, man, it's incredible. So, I, I do want to talk about your book for a second. So, again, for those listening, the book is called "Dancing with the Devil: Confessions of an Undercover Agent." What all is in this book? Just incredible stories like we're we were he- we're hearing today.
3: Yeah, the the beginning. It's it's pretty much a book. It deals with my, my, uh, my childhood and how I lead up in, to getting into law enforcement. And there's also a story of redemption and seeking approbation, you know. Uh, but it starts out with me just being on the street as a tough street kid, my relationship with my father, and then eventually getting into ATF, and then eventually transferring over to DEA, and three or four or five of the cases that I had, which some of them were funny and some of them were pretty serious. And then we leave into Nicky Barnes, and then there was a few others, oh. the the London case, and a few other cases that I was involved in, and that was the that was the, that was the extent of the book.
0: I, I can't believe I didn't ask you at the beginning when you brought up being a Golden Gloves boxer and boxing in the army. I, I assume around the neighborhood when you were a kid, like you were just known as a somebody who could whip some ass, huh?
3: <laughs> yes. Matter of fact, again, not to blow my not to blow my shit or blow my own trumpet, but my neighborhood was pretty tough. It was right after the war, and they were people were having children like they were making cake. You know? So, so many kids on the street. There were hundreds of kids on the street. I mean, one block with about 10 buildings had about eight eight kids in that building, and they all played on the street. And it was tough, you know, to get into a game, to, to take a part in the block. So it was pretty much... Uh, Pretty much, uh, how would you say, meat. We were all meat and meat to be eaten, yeah. you know, by yeah. others. And I chose to be the meat eater, you know? <laughs> you and, and, and because of the, the beatings that I took from my father, who still I love dealing, and, and he was my, 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 my god. I, I really, I, he was my image, he was my role model, mm-hmm. but he treated me very severely. So I got, I got hit pretty hard as a kid so I, I I wasn't going to get hurt by anybody. I wasn't afraid of anybody. And that's what is, was one of the biggest things of getting into a fight. When you get into a fight, you can't think about what the other guy is going to do to you, only what you're going to do to him. And that was my attitude as a kid. And But I wasn't a bully. Uh, I interceded for friends that were getting uh, picked on uh, by others. And so I was pretty well known as, yeah, a tough guy, but I was a peacemaker as well. And then when I went into the Golden Gloves and basically... I got more of a reputation and made me more uh how would you say, uh more of a, a protector for my friends because of my experience with the gloves.
0: Do you, do you ever regret not pursuing a pro career?
3: Yes, I, I did. I and I, I yes I did. Matter of fact, I I had a meeting with Jake LaMata, uh, who saw me fight as a kid and uh in, in the Mardi Gras, and that's a, uh, that's a little bit of a story. But anyway. Can,
0: can I uh, hear a little bit of that story? Because I'm a huge Jake LaMotta fan. Great chin.
3: Yes. Well, well, okay. Well, I was touring around New York just looking. I was on a fishing expedition, and I passed by the Mardi Gras. I forget exactly where it was. And I saw Jake LaMotta standing outside. So, boom, I, I looked for a parking spot right away. I parked, and I walked up to him. I says, Jake, Jake LaMotta. He said, yeah, the last time I saw him, I was I'm Jake Lamana. So <laughs> so anyway, we started to talk about different things, things that I knew about. Johnny Reed at a Red Hook, who was a, my coach, and he knew him. And so we started talking. He says, come on to, into the club. So I went into the club with him, which was, you know, one of those pool girl dancing places, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. never yeah. heard of
0: it. Yeah, I,
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, seen pictures. I, I tell you the truth, and I never went to one of those. Never. Yeah, never yeah, went to one yeah, of yeah, those. Yeah. So anyway, that was my first time in there. So we started talking about a lot of things and he told me, he says, you, and his accent, you know, he had this boxer accent, you know, he said, you know, kid, they're going to, they're going to be making a movie about me. And, and, and I wouldn't mind you being in the movie. So I says, great. Matter of fact, you look like the guy I beat, Marcel Sedan. And, and, and that's another story. But anyway, he introduces me to the, this bouncer. This guy was about six foot something. You know, I want to meet you. this guy, this guy walked over a big blonde guy, you know? So he's talking to us. What's up, Jake? As if to say, was, as if to say there was a problem, right? Uh-huh. So I looked over to the guy and I recognized him. And I said, "Say, hey, I used to kick your ass as a kid. You heard about the Diaz brothers? It's, Holy shit, Jake. This guy is dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's true. You know, it's a true story. So anyway, we ended up, I ended up leaving the club. And Jake brought me up to see uh, the guy who helped him write the book, which his name escapes me right now. But I got an interview with Sis Gorman, who was the casting director for and Bull, and she was going to cast me in the movie. But I couldn't get a, a, I couldn't get approval by DEA. Oh. So I regret, I read that to this day because I would have loved to have been in that movie because it's one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. So that's a story about that. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: it's tough being an undercover. It's one thing you've got to sacrifice is not being in major motion pictures.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Matter of fact, I, Jake took me to the 14th Street gym where, where De Niro was working out. Oh. And uh, i got to tell you, De Niro was he boxed very well, but he couldn't take a punch.
4: Oh, <laughs> really? Oh.
3: Yeah. But he, he was boxing well. He had good style, and he was holding his own, you know? So I got a chance to talk to him. And what the, I asked him, uh, what was that movie what the Deer Hunter? The Deer Hunter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I says to him, You know, I'm gonna see the Deer Hunter. I heard so much about it. Says, no, 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 you don't wanna see that movie, not with the kids, you know? <laughs> so I I didn't do that. I, I watched it by myself. And I became a big fan of that movie as well.
0: Yeah, that's a great movie, but you don't want your kids to go see that. <laughs> yeah. Uh oh no. But you did okay, so post your career in law enforcement, you finally get to be on screen right you've done some tv and film stuff
3: yes yes what, yes what
0: what's your favorite thing you've gotten to do so far acting wise
3: i tell you everything i did was i enjoyed very much uh i did vip with pamela anderson i had a recurring role Ooh, with her nice. that was exciting she
0: is hot in real life as she will appear to be in person No,
3: yes she is but she's a funny girl very funny really she, not, she told me when i was in the car and there was a scene where i was in the cadillac with my with my uncle so i passed as his nephew but i was also a tough guy who looked out for family anderson as well uh-huh. and she said that she used to walk around with my picture to feel intimidated by me so that she would get in the, <laughs> the role. <laughs> this is terrible, I'm not that bad looking, you know? but she left and, I, and I left, but she was funny. She was really funny. man. she was nice to be with. Uh, and then I did some others. Oh my God. I can't think of them all. The pretender. I did NYPD. I liked NYPD blue. I had a couple of, nice. uh, uh, episodes with them. Uh, that was a great, great part that I played. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, Let's see. Other, I can't really tell What's you the, the other ones that I played or what how I felt about them right now. But the way I got into acting is very interesting as well, if you have a moment.
4: Yeah.
3: Well, I, I was at work, and I wanted to just go well, a lunch break, okay? So I would walk across the bridge that connected uh, our building with a, a hotel, okay? Uh-huh. So I walked across the, the bridge, if you will, that connected the two places, and I saw all this fanfare going on, cameras and, and girls and guys walking around. And I was taken in by, the, by the, the lights and the glare of everything, you know. So I grabbed this newspaper, I put it under my arm, and I walked in like I, was, I belonged there, right? So I walked up to, I saw this big guy sitting in a chair, and that was Paul Savino. So I walked up to him, and I had this, <laughs> I had this act that I would do. And as a matter of fact, it even it works for a lot of people. You go up to them and you say, "Hey, buddy, how are you? Remember when we met back in places?" And they would be embarrassed not to say that they know. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I did. That, I did that with Clooney as well. So anyway, <laughs> we talked, and he started talking, and then there was another guy next to him. Uh, and I forget his name right now, but he was like he was kind of uh, upset that I was talking to, to Paul the way I was uh, because he was in man, right? So after that. We, went to a, we all went to a restaurant together. They invited me to go with them. And then from there, I would go to this restaurant every Tuesday. And every Tuesday, I would meet different, different actors. Uh, uh, Robert Foster, who I became very close friends with. And God rest his soul, he recently passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as who? Well, oh, there was a whole host of so people that I met.
0: When you're mixing with these actors, you tell them your whole backstory? Because they had to be fascinated. They probably wanted to hear all your stories.
3: Well, no, I didn't tell them all my stories, but I let everybody know that I, I wasn't an, an agent yeah. because I didn't want to mix their business with mine because some of them use cocaine, of course, you know? Oh, yeah. So, so I, made, I just made it clear that I, I didn't want to be involved with anything like that. Uh, and so it, it was left like that. And I got their respect for that, and that's how it went, you know? But there was one particular occasion when I went, was in the club, and uh, I was sitting at another table and it was Robert Foster sitting with somebody else, okay. And he calls me over to the table. He says, "Look, I want to introduce you to this gentleman, who turned out to be Bill Lustig, a director, right?" Mm-hmm. And we talked for a while. And his uncle was it was Jake Lamada so we started talking <laughs> about Full that. Circle. and <laughs> One thing to another. We we became friendly, and I left. You know, I said, "Bye," and that that was it, right? But a day or two later, I get a call from. Uh, from from Foster, and he said, but, th- "But this gentleman, Bill Lustig, was his name. He would like to talk to you." I said, fine, I I guess that's fine. Yeah, why not? <laughs> uh, and Lou, he's a director. I says, "Holy shit, how am I going to work this out?" So I called him, and he says, "I would like to try you out for a film," and it was called Maniac Cop Three. And Maniac said, Cop Three. Oh, I know. Yeah. I
0: saw the first Maniac. Cop. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: I didn't know yeah. they had a three, but that's awesome.
3: Yeah, so anyway, he said, I want to send you some sides. I didn't know what sides were. I thought it was sides of beef, you know, but <laughs> sides of <laughs> sides of of the script, you know? Uh-huh. So he sent me about three or four pages that were relative to the part I was going to play, and I read them, and I memorized the lines. I memorized the lines of the other guy when, uh, I was talking, and actually, I was doing the right thing. So I knew it back and forth. So when I auditioned for it, I auditioned with Robert Davi. He was the principal actor in the the uh, movie, right? Uh-huh. So after I interviewed with him, Lustig said to me, I thought you said you never did this. I said, oh, I never did this, but I did this as far as being a cop, you know? Yeah, I've been acting so,
0: for yeah your entire adult life.
3: Yeah, so Robert Davi told uh, Bill Lustig that he would like to have me in a movie. And then from there, I got my sad card. And then from there, I was just history. I kept going on and on and on.
1: Is Was the Las Vegas that you were in the Las Vegas with James Caan?
3: Jim McCone,
1: yeah. Oh, that's
3: awesome. No, my memory is gone. Come on. Uh, James Cohn, right? James Cohn, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. From The Godfather. Right,
0: right. Wow. Okay, here's my final question. Lou, are you ready? Okay. Who was the most famous actor that you personally witnessed use cocaine?
3: (laughs) I never saw them do it, but I (laughs) I suspect that uh, Steven Seagal did.
4: Oh! Oh! This is oh,
0: what? you don't know what you I, just did, Lou. I <laughs> I hate Steven Seagal so bad. It's a running joke on this podcast, but I, that makes
1: so much sense. So you're friends with Steven Seagal?
3: Matter of fact, that's another story. <laughs> I, just, I, I had a friend in New York who was a friend of this guy who was. Uh, Seagal's uh, co-producer, okay? Uh-huh. And he was asking if he could have uh, somebody run his protective detail. And this friend in, in New York recommended me, and I interviewed with them, and the guy picked me to be head of his security uh, team that was going to be in Montana because he was filming a film called The Patriot.
4: Uh-huh. Okay, not
3: The Patriot. They confused with Mel Gibson. Yeah, no, no, no. So yeah. I became his... <laughs> And that's his the head of his security. You know and why he needed
0: security, security, Lou? Yes. Because he can't fight.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. No, I gotta tell you something. That guy can fight. Matter of fact, he, he doesn't have to uh, know all that karate shit. His arms and legs are so long he can kick your ass from two feet away. I'm living your
0: I know. I actually, this is a, a true story. I, I tried to challenge Steven Seagal to a fight on uh, Twitter. And then we actually have a friend of ours who used to fight in the UFC. He's like a big time uh, MMA fighter. And he said, uh, I, I said, do you think I can beat Steven Seagal in a fight? And he goes, you know, I, I think you'd be be more than he would expect to have to handle. But, uh, you know, he's like 6'8", <laughs> 320 pounds, right?
3: <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah,
0: that's quite a lot to deal with. Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> really? Okay, that's great. No, I was like a munchkin compared to him because I'm not that tall. I am about yeah, five yeah, seven. Yeah.
0: But so, do, you, do you like so Steven anyway, Seagal? Did you you like being around him? Nice guy.
3: Well, I tell you what, he was. He, I got to tell you, of all the people that I was with, all the actors, this guy when he walked into a place, uh, he, he he was like an aura about this guy. He mm. he commanded respect. I mean, there's something about yeah. him, the way he carried himself. You know. Gotta be the that really commended respect. It's the way he carried himself. Wow. And he, the thing is, he, you know you know what they say about people when your opinion of somebody else is greatly uh, influenced by what they think of you, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, Stephen thought very highly of me, and I was, very, I, I was very taken with that. And as far as I was concerned, matter of fact, uh, I couldn't carry a gun uh, to Montana because mm-hmm. I didn't get the clearance to carry my gun on, on the plane. So when I got there, you know I told Stephen Stephen the only thing I, I don't have I was I wasn't able to bring a gun with me so he pulls out a bag full of guns okay <laughs> and he hands me a 45 one of the 45 that he uses in films so I had that 45 with me th- throughout the whole uh, part of the uh, movie okay nice. and then when we ended up the movie uh, I was going to give him back I, I was I was handing him back a gun and he says I says here Stephen, here's your gun And he said to me, no, that's not mine. So he gave me his 45, which I still have.
1: Holy shit. God. Yeah. Yeah. I knew he was a great guy.
0: You know, I I loved having you so much, Lou. Even though you spent an exorbitant amount of time telling us how bad Will Smith is and how good Steven Seagal is. Which (laughs) contradicts... (laughs)
4: Everything no, I'm not
3: that saying I I'm just saying he doesn't represent, Nicky I that right. well. That's no, no, saying. I
0: get it. I'm just teasing, I, I don't
3: it. want to get on his bad side, especially if he's might <laughs> use me in the movie. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what?
0: He should. I think everybody should. I can't thank you enough for spending uh, all this time with us. Your these stories are incredible, and you're just a, a kick ass guy, you're a hero. And now you're getting to do what you always wanted to do and you, you know what you deserve it and everybody should uh, that's listening to this show should definitely make a point to find you where where can they look you up at
3: Well, I have a I mean Wikipedia, I have a Wikipedia page. Yeah. And also my book Dancing with the Devil uh-huh. uh is on amazon.com. Okay. It's still can be bought. Amazon.com, yeah.
0: Very good. And if they check out IMDB, they can see what, what all you've been in. But you have a stage name that you use, right?
3: No, I have a. I my, na- my stage name is Lou Casal, C-A-S-A-L. That was one
0: of my grandmother's names. Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, hey, again, brother, I uh, appreciate all that you've done for us uh, in your career in law enforcement, and uh, I wish you nothing but the best from here on out. If Will Smith doesn't put you in that movie, he's an idiot. <laughs> And uh, say hello to Steven Seagal for me next time you see
3: him. we haven't seen him in a long time. <laughs> okay. In 20 years, I haven't seen that guy. But anyway, if I ever see him again, I'll tell him that, Dodge.
0: Uh, okay, I appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much, Lou. We appreciate it, for real.
3: Dodge, thank you so much for giving me that time. It was fun, really fun. And thank you guys for uh, getting involved as well. Thank you. Hey, and Bruce, have a happy Lou. holidays all of you. Thanks,
1: Lou. Same Lou. You and, as well.
3: And a great new year, buddies.
0: You too, Ah, you too You're the best, Lou Take care, Lou
3: Okay Thank you so much Thank you